Well, I invite you to turn in your Bibles to Romans chapter 10, which is found on page 946 of your pew Bible. As you turn there, a reminder that Paul has been wrestling since the beginning of chapter 9 with the question of how it is that the people of God have seemingly largely rejected their Messiah. He began with struggling with how to understand this, and he returns to this question, this burden he has for his own people at the beginning of chapter 10, and continues to think about how it is that we become righteous before God, how we enter into right relationship with him. So we'll be reading verses 1 through 13 of chapter 10. I invite you to join me in prayer that we would ask the Holy Spirit to illumine our reading and thinking together this morning. Let's pray. Holy Spirit, we do pray that you would shine your light upon us now. As we open up your word, we pray that you would open up our hearts and our minds, that we might be ready to hear you speaking to us. Help us to set aside the distractions of our lives, to focus on these words of eternal life, which come to us by your grace and through your word. Help us to understand how we might rightly apply what we read today to our own lives and to our own hearts for your glory and for our joy. We pray in the name of Jesus. Amen. So beginning in verse 1 of chapter 10, I invite you to hear now the word of the Lord. Brothers, my heart's desire and prayer to God for them, that is for the Israelites, is that they may be saved. For I bear them witness that they have a zeal for God, but not according to knowledge. For being ignorant of the righteousness of God and seeking to establish their own, they did not submit to God's righteousness. For Christ is the end of the law for righteousness to everyone who believes. For Moses writes about the righteousness that is based on the law, that the person who does the commandments shall live by them. But the righteousness based on faith says, Do not say in your heart, Who will ascend into heaven, that is, to bring Christ down? Or who will ascend into the abyss? Who will descend into the abyss, that is, to bring Christ up from the dead? But what does it say? The word is near you, in your mouth and in your heart, that is, the word of faith that we proclaim. Because if you confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord, and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. For with the heart one believes and is justified, and with the mouth one confesses and is saved. For the scripture says, everyone who believes in him will not be put to shame. For there is no distinction between Jew and Greek, for the same Lord is Lord of all, bestowing his riches on all who call on him. For everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Each one of us, if we were to line up on a spectrum, would fall somewhere on uh, the category of either rule follower or rule breaker. Each of us lean in one direction or the other. I thought about myself this week and I think that I probably lean more towards rule follower. I like to know what the expectations are, where the boundaries are, where I am on the field. It helps me feel like I'm in control of the situation. 
if I know, if I have an understanding for what the parameters are. My idea of rebellion was going to seminary rather than law school, like everyone else in my family, which is maybe the lamest rebellion I can think of. And so I think I probably am a rule follower. Maybe you are too. Maybe, though, you're a rule breaker. Maybe you're the kind of person that feels in control when you make up your own rules and you resist any and all attempts to fence you in. You might rather follow your heart than follow the rules. But in truth, both the rule follower and the rule breaker actually have more in common than it first seems because both rule follower and rule breaker are seeking a sense of control. And both of them are really defined by their relationship to the rules, either positively or negatively. One zealously tries to keep the law, one zealously tries to avoid the rules and make up their own rules, but both want to have a sense of control, to feel like they are calling the shots. Paul has his own way of describing this in our passage. We might say that rule keepers are seeking to establish their own righteousness by zealously following the law. Rule breakers refuse to submit to God's righteousness, but either way, both have the same problem, and that is unrighteousness. Whether breaking or following, we all fall under this situation of unrighteousness. Paul is thinking again, as he did at the beginning of chapter 9, now about his beloved, unbelieving brothers and sisters, his fellow Jews, and his heart is heavy, and is on his knees praying for them because he says they have a zeal for God, but not according to knowledge. And here we see how even rule-following leads to rule-breaking because of sin. It's interesting because he says zeal for God in a bad sense. Usually zeal for God in the New Testament is a very good thing. Titus 2.14, we are told that we uh, Christians, believers, are to be zealous for good works. Jesus himself is said in John 2.17 to have zeal for God's house. And so typically, zeal for God is a good thing, but we see here that it is also possible to have zeal for God that is not according to knowledge. And this is obviously a bad thing. But what does this mean? Well, the way I might want to put it is that Paul is saying that meaning well doesn't mean much. Everybody finds ways to justify their behavior, their attitudes, what they do. We all come up with explanations as to why, even when we make mistakes, we were trying to do the right thing. We meant well. So we justify what we do and how we live in some way to make it seem righteous. And the thing Paul is getting at here is that actually, when you are a religious person, this is extremely dangerous, especially dangerous, because we can convince ourselves that our sincerity and our good intentions make it okay. But actually, he shows that religious sincerity can make matters even worse. Now, we see this in all kinds of ways in our world. In our post-9-11 world, we know that zeal for God can lead to incredibly harmful and terrible actions. John Stott says the proper word for zeal without knowledge, commitment without reflection, or enthusiasm without understanding is fanaticism. But we should be careful before we assume that it's only those fanatics out there that are blinded by their own sense of sincerity, their religious zeal. Because the truth is that all religious people, no matter how well-behaved or well-meaning we are, in fact, Paul is pointing out here that it is especially those who are well-meaning that are in danger of being blinded, self-deluded, 
by our own sincerity. I'm sure we've all met people who are very religiously observant that are about as pleasant as a kick in the shin. But the thing is, this is a serious problem for all of us, because the risk is that we confuse our sincerity for true spirituality. The longer you go convinced that you mean well, the harder it will be for you to see that you are wrong. The longer we are convinced of our own good intentions, our own zeal, our own sincerity, the easier it will be for us to be confused and think that we are actually righteous. The more we pursue establishing our own righteousness, the less we recognize our need for God. If you are driving to a friend's house that you've never been to before, and let's say you don't have a GPS and you left your phone at home, and you don't know the way, it doesn't matter how much you want to get there or how sincerely you are trying to get there, you need a map. You need directions. You need knowledge. And all the wives in the congregation shouted, Amen. <laughs> the farther you go trusting yourself and your own intuition, the more lost we become. Sincerity alone doesn't help. Zeal without knowledge actually hurts us because it deludes us and blinds us to our real situation before God. And what is our real situation? Well, Paul has made it clear all throughout Romans, we are not in proper relationship to God. We are not righteous before God. We do what he doesn't want. We don't do what he does want. Paul's word for this is unrighteous. It not in right relationship with God. So then how do we get back into right relationship with God? Or to use Paul's language, how do we become righteous? Well, Paul lays out two options before us in our passage today. He calls one righteousness that is based on the law, and the other is called the righteousness that is based on faith. And in verse 5, he spells out the righteousness that is based on the law. For Moses writes about the righteousness that is based on the law, that the person who does the commandments shall live by them. He's referring to Leviticus 18, where God says that if you as my people want to really live, keep my statutes and my rules. Or as it says elsewhere in the Old Testament, do this and you will live. Lest we think this is just an Old Testament idea, Jesus himself actually says something very similar once to a young man who comes up to him and says, teacher, what good deed must I do to inherit eternal life? Jesus replies, if you would enter life, keep the commandments. Do this, and you will live. This is what Paul, Moses, Jesus all call righteousness that is based on the law. That the person who does the commandments will live by them. This is option one. And we actually touched on this a couple weeks ago. If you live a perfect life, if you can keep all the commandments all the time for your entire life, then you don't need Jesus. You can earn your salvation. Jesus himself responded this way to the young man. But if you've ever had an envious thought, or you've ever failed to honor the Sabbath, or ever used the Lord's name in vain, or ever did some, said something untrue about someone else, you've already broken half of the Ten Commandments. We talked about that a couple weeks ago. Maybe some of you were thinking, well, that was a, that was a sneaky little thing that, we, that you did there, Pastor Andy, but I've thought actually since then that there's 
There's two things you didn't mention. One is that that is in the Old Testament. We are New Testament people. After all, Jesus has come to set us free from all of that. Now, the, the good news of the gospel is that because of Jesus, God will forgive us, and we're just supposed to do the best we can from here on out. But is that the message of the gospel? That because of Jesus, God will forgive us, and so we are just supposed to do the best we can? Well, Jesus, when he was talking about the, the law in the Sermon on the Mount in Matthew 5, he says this as he begins to reinterpret the Old Testament law for his people. He says this, Do not think that I have come to abolish the law or the prophets. I have not come to abolish them, but to fulfill them. For truly, I say to you, until heaven and earth pass away, not an iota, not a dot will pass from the law until all is accomplished. Therefore, whoever relaxes one of the least of these commandments and teaches others to do the same will be called least in the kingdom of heaven. But whoever does them and teaches them will be called great in the kingdom of heaven. For I tell you, unless your righteousness exceeds that of the scribes and the Pharisees, you will never enter the kingdom of heaven. Does that sound like he's saying we don't have to pay attention to the, all that God has revealed up until now? Does it sound like he's saying, oh, don't worry about the law, just do the best you can with whatever laws seem right to you? Well, I checked the Greek, and what it actually means is this. Do not think that I have come to abolish the law or the prophets. I have not come to abolish them, but to fulfill them. He means that not an iota, not a dot of the law is irrelevant. That whoever relaxes even the least of them is the least in the kingdom of heaven. He's saying that unless your righteousness, he's saying that the righteousness of the most righteous is not righteous enough. So here is where we see that sincerity and zeal do not help us in our predicament. Because righteousness that is based on the law says, do this and live. But the thing we discover, if we're honest, is that we can't do it. And in fact, the more zealous we are and the harder we try, the more lost we get, the more self-righteous we become, the more blind and self-deluded to our real situation we are. So we're stuck because we can't obey the law, but we have to obey the law if we're going to be righteous before God. So now what? Jesus says, do not think that I have come to abolish the law or the prophets. I have not come to abolish, but to fulfill them. And flipping back to Romans, Paul says in verse 4 that Christ is the end of the law for righteousness to everyone who believes. How can it be that Christ is the, both the end of the law and the fulfillment of the law? Well, here, the Greek helps us. Because the word Paul uses here is telos, which is a wonderful word that means both end point, conclusion, termination point, but also it means the fulfillment, the completion, the goal. And so Jesus is the end of the law because he has fulfilled the law. He's the end of the law because he is the goal towards which the law was always pointing us. You see, Jesus came because it is simply and utterly impossible for sinful human beings to establish our own righteousness. 
And the point of the law was not to help us do the impossible, not to get us to think we could accomplish this obedience, but to help us see clearly how far short we fall of the standard. The point of the Old Testament and all of its laws is to help us see our need, how far off we are from the holiness that is required of us to be in the presence of God, to help us see our desperate need for a Redeemer. And so there's nothing wrong with the Old Testament. There's nothing wrong with the law of God. But we and the Jews of Paul's day have misunderstood its purpose. It was never meant to be the means by which we attain righteousness. It was meant to be the means by which our unrighteousness becomes clear to us and our need for a Savior would be revealed. And so Christ has come to fulfill the law, to perfectly obey the law in our place, on our behalf, as a human being. Which means that we do not have to live under the burden of fulfilling the law perfectly because it has already been fulfilled perfectly for us. But where Moses said, do this and live, Jesus did it and willingly died. Which means that we can now draw on his account of righteousness by faith. He takes the penalty of death due to us for our sin, and he gives to us his reward of life due to him for his righteousness. That's why he's the end of the law, because he is its goal. He is the point of it, the completion, the culmination of all that has come before. So Paul goes on to spell out what this means for us. It means that we don't have to ask anymore, what do I have to do? Paul says, we don't need to try to ascend into heaven because Christ who was in heaven already descended to earth in his incarnation. We do not have to descend into some secret abyss because he has already ascended from the grave in his resurrection. And so because of the person and work of Jesus Christ, righteousness, right relationship with God, is available and accessible Paul says the word is near you. It's not far off. It's not way up in heaven. It's not way down in the depths. It is near you. It is in your heart and mouth. If you confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord, if you believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. When I trust that what Christ did, he did for me, then I am entering into a relationship of trust with Jesus Christ. I have faith. I am entering into a relationship with trust. And as we discussed last Sunday, if righteousness is an essentially relational idea, then that means that when I am in right relationship with Jesus Christ, I am righteous. When I trust in Christ, I am rightly related to him, which means I am righteous in him. And so Paul says, he is the end of the law for righteousness to everyone who believes. And so we don't need any more to establish our own righteousness by either rule-keeping or rule-breaking. Instead, we are to trust Christ, and his righteousness becomes ours. His Father becomes our Father. His death becomes our death. His resurrection becomes our resurrection. His future becomes our future, and we are saved. That's how the gospel works. The word is near you, Paul says. The word became flesh and dwelt among us, John writes. Christ is the end of the law. He's the end of all of our rule-breaking and rule-keeping efforts to establish our own righteousness, 
to justify ourselves, all the million and one ways we try to be enough and do enough on our own. He is the end of all of that. He is the end of that striving. And he is the end of the law in the sense that he is the goal towards which it was pointing. He's the point of it. He's the culmination. He is the one who fulfilled the requirements of the law. And so with all that Christ has done, all that is left for us is simply to trust what he has done and to speak about it, to believe in our hearts and confess with our mouths, which might seem so simple. But if you think about it for a second, that's those two simple responses to what Jesus has done, believing in our hearts and confessing with our mouths, has changed the world and it changes lives. So it seems simple, but it is really profound. When we trust him in our hearts and bear witness with our mouths that Jesus Christ was born for us and lived for us and died for us and rose for us and reigns for us and prays for us and is preparing a place for us and will come again for us, this is the good news of the gospel. It is simple and profound all at the same time. And so the question is not, what must you do to be saved? The question is, is this true of you? Whoever you are, wherever you've been, the word is near you, even now. Not at the end of a lifetime of zealous striving and working and earning and worrying and wondering. It's not in some secret heaven or deep abyss. The word is near you. It is in your heart. The offer is on the table for you. For the first time or once again afresh. The promise is that if you confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord, and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. For with a heart one believes and is justified, with a mouth one confesses and is saved. For the scripture says, everyone who believes in him will not be put to shame. For there is no distinction between Jew and Greek. The same Lord is the Lord of all, bestowing his riches, his righteousness, his life on all who call on him. For everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. Let us pray. Lord, help us to believe this. Help us to live in it and live from it. Thank you for what you have done for us, putting an end to the law and its power of condemnation over us by being the fulfillment of the law and fulfilling its righteous requirements on our behalf for dying so that we might live. Help us to receive it and live in it, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Let's stand and sing together hymn number 379.